0: We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Amen. Thank you, Cody. And uh, thank you, Carol and Corey and uh, the team for leading us so well. I got to experience that two times this morning. Uh, can we just thank our, our worship team just for leading us through this experience? Uh, man. Well... I want to welcome you, if you're joining us online or if you're here with us in the room, we are in week two of a series we're calling Rewriting Love. And so we're talking about marriage, we're talking about family, and and we are going to be talking about singleness in this series as well, and how the gospel shapes those things in our lives. And uh, my wife, Carrie, and I, we've been married for 23 years, and if Carrie was standing right here next to me right now, she would say the same thing, that that, uh, marriage has been the source of some of the greatest joys of our lives. And uh, we have four uh, wonderful boys that are teenagers at this point. And, but we would also both tell you that marriage has also been the source of some of the greatest heartache and some of the greatest struggle of our lives as well. Um, and so, talking about the struggle of marriage, uh, this past week I found some uh, marriage tweets. These are tweets that actual people said talking about the struggle of marriage. See if we can relate to any of these. This wife says, Husband, day one of marriage, where do we keep the can opener? Husband, day 4,563 of marriage, where do we keep the can opener? Does anybody relate to this? This, this, is, this is our marriage right here. It literally is. This past week, Harry, there was something. Carrie's like, it's been 23 years. How do you not know where that is in the house yet? Um, I love this uh, husband. He said, when my wife gets upset at me, I sneak into her Netflix profile, and I give thumbs up to the most boring documentaries. <laughs> You might want to file that one away. That's an awesome way to take revenge right there. Or this one, um, the wife says, get married so when you pour your heart out, someone is always there to say, what? Like, are you still talking? What, I wasn't even listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> Marriage is a struggle. We, we know this, right? I, I don't even have to tell you about divorce rates within the church and outside of the church. You already know that. If I were to tell you that one out of every two airplanes is going to crash, would you ever travel by air again? of course not. And yet every year there is no shortage of people like running as fast as they can to, to get down the aisle to get married. My calendar is full every year of couples who want to get married. So why? Why when we know it's, it's a struggle, why when we know uh, so many marriages struggle and end in divorce, why do we have this desire for marriage? And last week, we looked at Ephesians 5. We're gonna look at, again at that passage of scripture and go a little bit deeper. What we said last week is that the reason is because God created marriage and he has purposes for it. God created marriage and he has purposes for it. And that's why marriage touches the deepest longings of our, of our lives as we, as we hope for intimacy, as we hope for true connection with others. And so this is what I wanna say going into what we're gonna be talking about this morning, uh, talking about marriage, whether you're a single person, whether you're married, I want you to know marriage does not solve your problems. Marriage does not create your problems. What marriage actually does is marriage reveals your real problem. That's really what it does. So marriage doesn't solve your problems. There are single people watching online right now, in the room right now, who you're thinking to yourself, if I could just get married, if I could just find that person, it would solve my problems. I'm here to tell you, getting married does not solve your problems. It just doesn't. Uh, There's married people in this room, we're watching online, that right now think, man, marriage is what, like all my problems in my life stem from my bad marriage. I'm here to tell you marriage did not create your problems. What marriage actually does in our world and for us is it reveals our real problem. And what is our real problem? I'll I'll describe it this way. Uh, My wife, Carrie, and I, as I just said, we, we have four boys. They are loud, they are noisy in our home, and so what we've discovered is that if we want to connect in our marriage, we go on walks every single day. It's just something we've been doing the last several years. It's a great way to connect. I think walks are great if, if you're married or in a relationship to be able to communicate because you're not like staring at each other adversarially. You know, you're, you're walking alongside one another. It just makes it easier to talk. And so we go, we go on these walks to connect in our marriage. But here's the thing. Um, before we go every single day on our walk, I refuse to double knot my shoes I don't know why. And Carrie asked me every day, she's like, before we leave, she goes, did you, did you double knot your shoes? And I'm like, no, I did not. I don't know why I don't like to do it. I, it's, I t- maybe I'm lazy. It just takes more time than I want to spend. And so here's what happens all the time. Inevitably, at some point on our walk, my shoelace will come untied. And so I will stop walking and I will bend down to tie my shoelace. And when I do that, Carrie will get so annoyed at me that I didn't double knot my shoes that she will just keep walking. Not only will she keep walking, she will actually speed up and pick up her pace so that when I do finally stand up, now I have to run to catch up to her. And when I catch up to her, I remind her of our wedding vows. I say, do you remember, honey, it was for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for faster or for slower. I think that was in there somewhere too. (laughs) Well, in any marriage, what you have is you have two people with basically the same exact real problem. The real problem for Carrie and for me and for all of us in marriage, the real problem is that it's, you have two selfish, sinful people. That's our real problem. Any two people, when they get, to get together and get married, are basically two selfish and sinful people. We're two sinners getting married. And that's our real problem that we have in marriage. Now, why is that so important to know? The reason that's so important is because the question that we ask about marriage is this question right here. We say, are we compatible? That's the question everybody is trying to answer about marriage. In our world today, the question is, are we compatible? And so the lies we believe with this is is we say to ourselves, well, we we should have sex first before we get married, right? Because you don't want to get married to somebody and not know if you're compatible with them or not. And so we got to know. So we should have sex first and try things out first. uh, So then we'll know. And then once we get married, the lie we believe is, oh, if problems come up, well, the, the problem is apparently I married the wrong person. We must not be compatible. That's the issue, and so I have to leave and I have to go find somebody else who I am compatible with. Can I? Can I just tell you, there ain't nobody who's compatible with nobody else. This whole idea of compatibility—it's a total lie. It doesn't exist. You can't be compatible with another person. There is no such thing as a compatible person, getting married to a compatible person because we are all sinners. Our sin nature has left us spiritually and sexually broken. So therefore, it is impossible for one sinner to say to another sinner, you complete me. Sorry Hollywood, sorry Disney Plus, that's not the way it goes. And so the the real question that we're going to be answering today as we go and as we look again at Ephesians 5. Last week we looked at Ephesians 5. We talked about the purpose of marriage. And we said, God has, God created it, God has purposes. Today, what we're looking at is this question: how do we overcome our incompatibility and have a Christ-centered marriage? What does that look like? How How do we overcome our incompatibility? Because everybody's incompatible, we're all sinners. How do we do that and actually have a Christ-centered marriage? And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the New York City of the Greco-Roman world. It was the epicenter of progressive culture. That's what it was. And so he's talking about marriage in this very progressive, very large city And so he begins this conversation to husbands and wives and to families, and what he says is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's the picture of what a Christ-centered marriage looks like. It's submitting to one another out of your ultimate submission, out of your ultimate reverence for Christ. Now, I want to give you a visual illustration of this that's helped me understand uh, this idea. I'm not the one who came up with this. In fact, some of you in this room have probably seen this before. But I think it's just a great visual way to represent what this verse is talking about. So in a Christ-centered marriage, what you have is you have God, and then you have a husband and a wife, or you have Christ, you have Jesus. Now notice in this scenario, the only way for, for me and for Carrie, my wife, to grow closer to one another is we simultaneously have to go up the triangle and we have to grow closer to God. You see that? The only way for us to grow closer as husband and wife is to simultaneously grow closer as we move uh, together closer to God. It can't just be her moving closer to God. that We don't get any closer that way. It can't just be me growing closer. To, it has to be both of us together. Now, in this model, the reason I like this is because Jesus is the focus of this model. So the focus of our lives, the focus of our family and of our marriage is Christ. The focus isn't on her and and what her needs are. The focus isn't on me and what my needs are. The focus isn't on the kids. That's not the focus. The focus is Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about. He He says, we're submitting to one another, but out of our ultimate submission, out of our ultimate reverence, our ultimate love and fear of Christ. That's what we're doing together. And he goes on to describe this between husbands and wives. This is what he says. He says, wives... We, in our culture today, we bring so much of our own cultural baggage to this passage of Scripture. In fact, in all of the Bible, this is probably in the top, this passage of Scripture is in the top three, like, shocking, scandalous, controversial passages in Scripture. And in our culture, what's so shocking and scandalous, the part of it that when we read it that jumps out is the part that says, wives, submit to your husbands, That appears shocking and scandalous to us. But what's really interesting is, I don't know if you noticed how Paul spent twice as much time talking to husbands about loving your wives. In an ancient culture, in a Greco-Roman culture, in the city of Ephesus, the New York city of Paul's day, the part of this passage that would have been much more shocking, much more scandalous was the part that says, husbands love your wives. That would have been shocking in a Greco-Roman world. What? Are you kidding me? And the reason I point that out is just to tell you that actually, in every single culture that these words have ever been looked at or, or preached to or, or examined, uh, the biblical understanding of marriage and the idea of a Christ centered marriage has not fit into any culture, any context ever throughout history. And the reason it's never fit in is because we always have a way, to, we always find a way to take these verses and interpret male headship as oppression toward women, as some way of kind of oppressing or or holding women down. And so, unfortunately, there's this sort of narrative out there in our world, but I would also say in the church as well, that says, you know, to to try to live this out, to try to have a Christ-centered marriage that is oppressive, that actually, you know, is abusive and holds women down. But I just want you to hear the the data actually doesn't um, reveal that. So I'm excited to read this to you. This is uh, Rodney Stark is one of the most celebrated and respected sociologists of religion in the entire world. He recently uh, released some research, and this is actual research done by an actual sociologist and his colleagues, and talking about religion and the impact of religion in uh, the home. And so I'll read you three things. He found that the data showed that religious husbands are far less likely to abuse their wives and children. Far, by, by a lot less likely to abuse their wives and children. So this whole narrative that, you know, male headship somehow creates abuse and, you know, oppression in the home, it's just, that's just not true. Also, it showed that religious fathers are more likely to be involved in youth-related activities, like coaching the kids' soccer team or, or whatever. In other words, religious fathers are way more involved in the lives of their kids, way more invested in their kids' lives. And then, um, it also said that religious couples enjoy their sex lives more. Women are actually likely to report having regular orgasms more often, and sex happens more often. I would have thought there would be an amen or something to that right there. I'm just reading you the data. That's all I'm doing right now. I'm just telling you what the data says. So, So this whole idea that, you know, somehow, if we try to live this out, if we actually try to apply this to our lives and to our homes... It's somehow going to create this oppressive thing. That actually is just not what the data says. And so what we really need to do as we look at this passage of scripture, last week what we said is that marriage is a metaphor and that's what Paul insists. We just read it a moment ago. Paul says marriage, in order to really understand it and what God's purposes are for it, it is a metaphor. In other words, uh, marriage is a relationship that points to another relationship. And so The relationship that marriage points to is the relationship of Christ and the church. That's the model. Christ and the church has to be the model of our marriage in order for it to work. And so then let's kind of look at this. Let's talk about what Paul says to husbands and wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So again, Christ and the church is the model that we're looking at here. And then he says, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. That's the model. And so the question we need to ask, husbands, let's begin with you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We have to ask the question then, how did Christ love the church? How did he do that? If we want to understand how to live this passage out, what what did it look like for Christ to love the church? One of my favorite verses in all of of Scripture is Romans 5.8. What Romans 5.8 says is that God demonstrated his love for us. God demonstrated his love for the church in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still sinners, the way that that Christ loved the church, the way that God demonstrated his love, before the church had done anything to submit to Jesus, before we'd done anything to love Christ, before we'd done anything to change or, or to submit ourselves, Jesus died for us. He went first and laid down his life. He sacrificed himself, and he went first. And so, you know, in this sense, how did Christ love the church? He laid himself down for her by going first. So in a very biblical sense, if a husband says to his wife, you need to submit to me, very biblically, according to this passage, she could turn to him and she could say, you die first, buddy. And it would be very biblical. <laughs> that's how Christ loved the church. He died for her first before uh, before we had turned to him and loved him and done anything. So then it it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And so the question we have to ask then is, okay, well then how did the church submit to Christ? How does the church submit to Christ? And what you see over and over and over again in the New Testament is the way the church submits to Christ is voluntarily out of our gratitude for the cross. It's what we were just celebrating a moment ago with communion. The church submits to Christ voluntarily out of gratitude for the cross, in response to the cross. Another verse in Romans, Romans ten nine, describes the way that we get saved, the way we enter salvation, the way we, we join the church, the way we become a part of, of uh, Christ and the body of Christ. It says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So so what does that mean to confess Jesus as Lord? What, What it means is when we confess Jesus as Lord, when we get saved, it means he's Lord and I'm not. That's what that means. He's Lord of my life. I am not Lord of my life. I belong to him. And so, that's how the church submits to Christ. That's how wives voluntarily, out of gratitude for the, for the cross, that is, that is the way that wives are called to submit to husbands. So for a husband to say to his wife, well, I would, I would love her if she would just submit to me. Well, that doesn't line up. That's not a picture of how Christ loved the church. He loved her by going first and laying down his life sacrificially for her even before she was submitting or responding the way he wanted her to. And for a wife to say, Why shouldn't I, I shouldn't have to submit to him. Well, that's not a picture of how Christ or how the church submits to Christ voluntarily out of gratitude for the cross. This is the picture we're given of what it means to, ha- to have a Christ-centered marriage. Now, the problem with this, the reason this passage has become so controversial and the reason it's, it's become such an issue is because what we actually do with this passage of Scripture is we turn it toward each other. We weaponize it, it, unfortunately, in the body of Christ. And so what we do is we, we turn it toward each other, we face each other, and we use it. Well, you should submit. Well, you should sacrifice, and we weaponize it. Can I just tell you, submission and sacrifice are not weapons. That's not what they are. That's not what they were ever intended to be. And the, the way that you kind of look at this passage of Scripture really matters because really, those things are never meant to be weapons. What they're meant to be is it's, it's a husband and wife. Instead of turned toward each other adversarily, just like I was talking about with Carrie and I on a walk, what it is is it's a husband and wife turning toward the cross. Remember the marriage triangle? It's a husband and wife, and they are turned toward Christ. They are turned toward Jesus. And so they're submitting and they're sacrificing uh, to one another, but as they are simultaneously turned toward Christ. Submit to one another out of your ultimate reverence, out of your ultimate submission to Christ. That's the picture we're given. So as we begin to turn this toward ourselves this morning, as we begin to ask, okay, so what do we do with this? Maybe you're not married yet. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're married again and trying to blend a family together. Maybe you've been married for a number of years. I think the most important question we could ask ourselves this morning and really ask this and talk about uh, what this means in our lives is this question of who is the hero of your marriage story? I think this question gets at the heart of what Paul is trying to get at in Ephesians 5. Who's the hero of your marriage story? Because it has to be Christ. If you're a single person, the hero of your marriage story, as you think about maybe someday if you want to get married, it has to be Christ. If you've been married for 23 years like Carrie and I, the hero of your marriage story has to be Christ. Because if we were going to answer this question completely honestly, there's some of us in this room, if we were going to be honest, the way we would answer this question is the hero of your marriage story is actually you. The way that you think is I'm actually the hero of my marriage story. So maybe, uh, maybe you're the only one coming to church in your marriage and it's you trying to follow Christ and, and maybe your, your spouse is not there and they're not with you and they're not going on this journey alone. And so in a sense, you think that you're the hero of the marriage story, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to save them, you're trying to fix them, you're trying to bring them along. Maybe before you got married, even maybe you said to yourself, well, they're not following Christ, but I, you know, I can change them. When we get married, I'm, I'm gonna be able to change them. Can I just tell you, that doesn't work. That's too big a burden for any person to bear. You can't be the hero of your marriage story. That's too great a burden. You can't fix another person. You can't change another person. You can't rescue another person. The focus of your marriage story has to be Christ. The focus of your life has to be Jesus. And you have to entrust your future spouse to Christ and focus on him. You have to entrust your your spouse right now who's not following Christ. You You have to entrust them to him and you have to make Jesus the hero of your marriage story. For some of you, if you're honest, you would say, well, my spouse is the hero of of our marriage story. Now, what do I mean by that? Right now, what you're saying to yourself is you're saying, well, you know, if they would just clean up their act, if if they would just submit to me, if they would just sacrifice for me, well, you know, then that would fix. If they would just stop doing all these hurtful things in our marriage and clean up their behavior and do this right, well, then see what you're doing. You're making them the hero of your marriage story. That'll never work. That's too big a burden for any person to live up to. Another person cannot fulfill you. Another person cannot satisfy you, can, cannot fix themselves or change themselves enough to make themselves compatible enough for you. Remember, we're sinners, all of us. We're all broken. Jesus has to be the hero of our marriage story. He has to be the one that we're focusing on. For, for some of you, if you were to answer that, honestly, you would say, well, kids, kids, Kids would be the hero of your marriage story. There's some people in our church right now who are struggling through infertility and they're struggling in their marriage. And, what they're, and some of the things that, that we think when we go through this is, oh, if we could just get pregnant, if we could just have kids, that would solve, that would fix our marriage. It would solve everything in our marriage. Or maybe things are falling apart in the marriage, but we'll stay together for the kids. Can I just tell you, that never works. It doesn't work. That's too great a burden to put on children. It's too great a burden to put on kids. They can't do that. The hero of your marriage story has to be Christ. It's the only way it works. I'll just tell you, as I think about this question for myself, if I'm honest, what I've noticed in my own life is that when I stray from this, when Jesus is not the hero of my marriage story, where I have times where I kind of stray away from that abiding life in Christ, and by the way, that, that happens to pastors. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I don't go through seasons and times where my pursuit of Jesus is not it Just like you, just like all of us, I can go through that too. And here's what I've noticed. The first thing that happens in my life when Jesus is not the hero of my story and, and when I'm you know, straying from that abiding life in Christ, the first thing that happens is I get a critical spirit like that. When I'm abiding in Christ, when Jesus is the hero of, of my life and my story, I'm an encourager. That's what I am. I, I'm, I'm a person who builds other people up. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be known as. But when, I'm str- when I stray away from that focus in my life and that abiding relationship in Jesus, what happens is I start looking for what's wrong with everybody. I, I, I start becoming critical, and I start wanting to point out what's wrong with this person, what's wrong with you, why didn't you get that right? And the first place it shows up in my life, always the first place, is with my wife and my children. I'm sad to tell you that the harshest words I have ever spoken in my life have been to Carrie and Alan and Andrew and Aaron and John. Jesus has got to be the hero of our marriage story, always. We've got to always come back to that. The band's going to come out in a minute. I'll close with this. Several years ago, it was about a week before Christmas, and actually it was the first Christmas that our family had spent in our, in our new home, the home that we lived in for 13 years. And uh, there's this knock on the door one night, literally like a week before Christmas. And so Carrie and our, and our boys were there in the house, and I go and I open the front door of our house, and there's this old guy standing on the front porch of my house. And I said, can I help you? And he says to me, he says, hey, uh, I used to live with the original owners of this house. The house was built in 1959, and he just said, I lived here. In those first early years, I lived here in this house with the original owners of of this house. And he he said, is there any way I could come in the house and just look around? And so you know, this is a little weird. Like I look at Carrie, she's looking at me. I mean, what would you say if somebody's standing on your front door asking to just walk in and look around your house? So I was like, I I don't know. And he says, hold on. And he pulls out of his pocket this big wad of old black and white photos. He's got all these black and white photos. He says, look, look, see, this is your house. And, And every single one of these photos, he's showing them to me. And every one of these photos, there is a woman and a little girl in what appears to be my house. I mean, the furniture is different. You know, the drapes are, are different, the, the carpet's different, but it's my house. And so, uh, you know, I look at Carrie, she looks at me, she shrugs her so- shoulders, and so I thought, well, I, I'll let this guy in, if things go south, Carrie could probably take him down. <laughs> and so, you know, I say, all right, come on in. And so this guy comes in, and with these black and white photographs in his hand, we, he and I just begin to walk around the different rooms of my house. And he, he says, he's just talking a mile a minute. He's like, if you rip the carpet up over here, it's gonna have this kind of flooring underneath it. Oh, that, that wood paneling over here, that didn't used to be here. That wasn't part of the original design of the house. And he goes, over here, it used to be painted this color and it was set up this way. And I mean, he's telling me things about my house that I had no idea. I mean, I'm learning stuff about my house I, I had no idea about. And he's showing me these pictures and every picture there's this woman and this little girl and he's just pointing out all these things of this house. So finally, at one point, I just said to him, hey, who are the people in, that, in those photographs? And just like almost flippantly, he just says, oh, that, that's, that was my wife and my little daughter. They died in a car crash about a year after we moved out of this house. And then he just goes on talking about the carpet. But for the first time, all of a sudden, I realize why this guy is really here, why he's really in my house. It's a week before Christmas. He just wants to come back and walk through the rooms of this house where he has all these memories with his wife and his little girl. He wants to remember what it was like to be part of this family. It's the closest he can get to being with them again. I've thought about that guy a ton over the years. God has brought him to mind many times, sometimes in moments where I'm just being critical of my wife and my kids, and it's like, I'll just think of this guy, and God will remind me, hey, buddy, you lived in this house too. You think you're owed something different? But the main reason I've thought about him over and over again over the years is because I think that experience and that guy and what he was going through there, it exposes the great tragedy of marriage. And, you know, we can talk about the joys of marriage, we can talk about the struggles of marriage and all that, but there is a great tragedy of marriage as well. And the great tragedy of marriage is that even if you have a Christ-centered marriage, even if you stay married for years and years and years, even if you do everything right, if you live long enough, eventually one of you will stand over the coffin of the other one. And that's why your spouse cannot be where your hope is placed. And you cannot be where your spouse places their hope. It, does, it won't work. Jesus has to be the hero of your marriage story. He has to be the focus. And I'm here to tell you, when Jesus is the hero story, when Jesus is the hero of your marriage story, That moment, that moment where you stand over the coffin of your spouse or when they stand over your coffin is never the end. Because of Christ, because of what he did for us. It is easy to love sacrificially. It is easy to submit voluntarily when Jesus is the hero of your marriage story. When he is the focus, it's not that hard at all actually it becomes one of the greatest things ever so here's the invitation this morning i want to invite you whether you're single whether you're divorced whether you're widowed or whether you've been married for a number of years i want to invite you today to make jesus the hero of your story i want to invite you to make jesus the hero of your of your marriage story For some of you, you've been married and you started with that, but things have gone south. And maybe today is the day you recommit and you say, like a stake in the ground today, from this moment on, from this time on, Jesus is going to be the hero of our marriage story. What does that look like? Maybe what it looks like you do today is, is you have a conversation with your spouse and you say, and you repent and you say, I'm sorry for making our marriage about me. Maybe what it looks like is you you put the kids to bed tonight and for the first time you pray together as a couple. Or for some of you maybe, and there's a few people who did this after first service. I had this thought earlier this week as I was preparing this message. We have this Jesus banner here in the room. So for the last, uh, not quite a year, people as they've been placing their faith and trust in Jesus, as, they, as they've been making Jesus the hero of their story, uh, we've been inviting people to come. We have Sharpies there in that little um, bucket right by there. And we've been inviting people to write their name in the letters in the name of Jesus. And so maybe today, uh, as symbolically as a way of saying from this point on, we, we are committing our lives. We're committing our marriage. Maybe you're a single person. You're saying, I'm gonna make Jesus the hero of my story and I'm gonna entrust it all to him. Maybe what you do is after we're done singing here, after the service is over, is you come up and you sign your name on that banner. You sign your family's name on that banner and you say, from here on out, Jesus is the center. He he is the focus. He is the hero of our marriage story. Would you pray with me? Jesus, what we know in this room today is that you are powerful and mighty to save You're mighty to save single people. You're mighty to save marriages. You're mighty to save husbands. You're mighty to save wives. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for what it means that you went first and loved us. So this morning, we make you the hero. We make you the focus. God, forgive us. Um, We repent, God, of, of ways in which we've made it about us, in which we've tried uh, on our own means on our own terms to try to make our marriages happen to try to change the other person or to try to save or fix the other person jesus uh, we put our focus squarely on you and we ask you to do what not what no one else can do jesus in this place we we boldly we ask you that you would redeem and restore marriages we ask that you would be the hope of each uh, each person um god that's part of our church that's not Uh, Their hope isn't in a spouse. Their hope isn't in kids, but is in you. And would you do what only you can do through that, Jesus? We trust you. And in Jesus' name, everyone said.